Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. So that there is literally the idea, you know, this is there in Sonoda, nature speaks, but there's also the notion of key, you know, well, we the Japanese spirit that, and, and I, I would think that this is almost a kind of uh, leftover, I don't know, or is it just pure ideology? But in other words, there is this kind of longing for a kind of Jamesian mm. bicameral. Is that a is that a un- understanding that you might apply? In other words, I'm I'm looking at your research course, the progression of this, and that would seem to be the way that it ties together. That Japan seems to pl- be a place where you have a lot of remnants. Mm-hmm. of an understanding, as you would in other places as well, of what James is describing. Yes. Um, I mean, I think if you look at carefully in any place, you will find these remnants of uh, what we would call a bicameral mentality. And certainly in Japan, there's different ways to look at it. This idea of looking for ultimate authorization for my behavior. So according to James, pre-conscious people would rely on the voices of the gods, uh, what we would call auditory uh, and visual hallucinations when they were confronted with a a novel problem. Whereas conscious people, we rely on directly ourself to tell us what to do. So we have the historical movement from divine authorization to self-authorization. But self-authorization is a little bit empty as a concept. We have to be more specific. So it's not just myself. It's how I was brought up, my community, um, what uh, my, my, my politics, uh, family influences. So authorization is actually a, a complex notion. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, religion, do I, do, do I believe that, my, that ultimately my actions are permitted or somehow linked to a, 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 a supernatural deity. So, so that's one example. Um, and as I said, it's difficult to talk about because it goes in so many uh, directions. Um, and I think in Japan, because of the shock of modernization in the late uh, 19th century, early part of the 20th century, the Japanese elite said, look, we have to find an easy way to unify our people. We have to give them a clear line of authorization. We don't want all these voices of democracy. It's too confusing. It'll lead to disorder in political instability. Let's make things simple. So in that sense, it's kind of a superficial sense, perhaps. But in that sense, I think there was an attempt to return to an e- to a easier politics, an almost pre-conscious politics. Of course, Japanese were conscious in the Meiji era, but... But the I, but we we all you know many people do that. I mean we're all attracted to charismatic leaders. We have to be very careful. I mean that's what that's what dictatorships are: being attracted to dangerous charismatic rulers. And because we have this longing, a nostalgia for a simple authorization. Um, the other thing I would say, and this is just more of a footnote, did my my first research project in Japan was on spirit possession. Uh, because I was interested in, and I still am, psychological anthropology. 
And so I did research with uh, what is called a new religion in Japan, mm-hmm. uh, Sukyo Mahikari. And in, as you know, uh, in Japan, spirit possession is widely practiced, at least in these groups. And of course, this relates to another cornerstone of Japanese religiosity, ancestor worship, uh, which I think is also related to earlier forms of mentality, um, having your your deceased ancestors tell you what to do. But in any case, so or so self self uh, spirit possession is uh, I think a striking example of a vestige of an earlier type of mentality. And of course, we find spirit possession all over the world, um, but it's interpreted differently depending on where you go. So in Japan, spirit possession, I, I think for Americans, when we hear spirit possession, we think of the exorcist. Yeah. yeah. And it, 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 sort of a, a very frightening, gruesome experience, a, a negative experience, because you're being possessed by demons and the devil, where in pl- a place like Japan, spirit possession um, is often regarded as having a, a benefit. It's, it's not, it doesn't necessarily have the, it, it can be negative, but not necessarily the group that I did my dissertation on, the whole idea of becoming possessed was to find out what you were doing wrong and how you could become a better person. You might be possessed by uh, an ancestor. You might be possessed by a snake that you stepped on in a previous life. And the idea was to atone for those sins. So that, that's just, um, you, you can see that in Japan, they had a very different perspective on spirit possession. But in any case, I just mentioned that because that's, that's a very good example of a, by a vestige of bicameriality. Yeah, and the and this I think gets at the heart of it. I thought I, I to me the impressive part of Julian Jaynes. You know, I don't I don't know how you prove or disprove this, and so I'm not sure. Maybe you have an opinion as to what, while it is science or it's not science, but the the impressive part of it is this this there does seem to be a kind of uniform uh understanding especially and i think you can almost trace it to ancestors uh and ancestor worship that seems to be the pervasive religion of nearly all peoples i don't know that you can uh and so that in some way Ancestor worship itself, is that already a step away from by a, a complete bicameral understanding? Well, what I would say, and Julian James would agree, is that the first gods or the first supernatural entities are ancestors. And that religion, as we think of it, grew out of a type of ancestor worship. And as you know, you know, what's interesting um, and you probably know more about this than I do, but if you look at what's interesting about the Abrahamic tradition of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, is that they're against ancestor worship. And that makes them very unusual if you look at the world's religion. In, in many parts of the, the world, uh, you, you, you find strong vestiges of ancestor worship. It's still practiced in many parts of the world. I mean, China, of course, Ch- Chinese religiosity is based on ancestor worship and by the way it's it's made a comeback in china ancestor. Oh, really wow yeah and of course as you know in japan ancestor worship is is key um you know when i studied the new religions that's basically that was one of their common denominators is um, ancestor worship and in fact i've always thought that myself that the first religion was 
ancestor worship and everything else just sort of evolved from that. And this, there's kind of a Freudian angle to all this because, you know, the, the idea is the father as God yeah. <laughs> or your, 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 especially your deceased father yeah. uh, becomes your God. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think there's something almost inbuilt in human nature to sort of look toward our parental figures as, um, yeah. Yeah. As, as, uh, as, as gods or, or some sort of supernatural entity. In Japan, ancestor worship, and you're describing in these groups where there's spirit possession, they're apparently, in other words, that I, I guess that you would identify they're, they're having an experience. Yes. They're hearing voices. Some, yeah. I mean, not, not all the people I work with, but, but some would hear voices or they would lose consciousness and act out certain things and claim that they had no memory of it. So there there was a wide variation in psychological experience, but they were definitely experiencing something. The reason why I decided to study spirit possession is because I wanted to apply a a Jamesian approach to my research. Um, My, and it became my dissertation. It really sort of flopped i think that that my dissertation i'm not really proud of it i mean i can't i can't say that i i proved anything i think it's i think i it's a good description of sukyo mahikari and their values but as far as showing um in in a rigorous scientific way what jane's claimed about spirit possession i, I think um there's a lot of doubt there but in any case i'm, I'm still a jamesian and i my more recent research I've tried to be more rigorous from a scientific perspective in showing that there's a lot of validity to what Jane's argued. So you would call it science? Jane's, yeah. yeah. So I, I definitely would. And the way I look at Jane's is he wrote this book. Uh, it's an unusual book, The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of Viking Mind. The, the title, it's a, it's a very terrible, awkward title. It's a mouthful. And he's all over the place in the mm-hmm. book, though he's a decent writer. But for James, his book was a blueprint. It was not the final word. Mm-hmm. His book is a series of propositions and hypotheses. Yeah. And if what you have to do, and what I'm trying to do in my work, is break James down into about five or six propositions, theoretical propositions, and then you can break those down into hypotheses. If you do it that way, then you can show whether there's scientific validity or not to what he had to say. Some things probably will not hold up very well. Some things will, I I think, do hold up. It's sort of like Einstein um, or Darwin. You know, they were brilliant thinkers, but people did not necessarily think there was any truth to what they were saying. Einstein, his theories did not become well-established until decades after he his first writings, because people had to go out and do the the dirty work of experimentation. It's the same thing with Darwin. It took decades to show that there's some validity to what they argued. The same thing is true with James. And so some people say, oh, you know, it, it's just all speculation. Well, you know, so was Einstein. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so we, so we have to take a, um, a scientific approach. And so, you know, my recommendation for anyone who reads Jane's is to 
and he he's an easy read, I think, because he he was such a good writer. Mm-hmm. He takes very complicated material, and he he makes it into a story. But you have to look for the claims he's making, and then come up with some hypotheses. So that's what I've attempted to do in several of my books. The the book on the Bible. Uh, th- there's a another book I wrote about Jane's called the other psychology where I, I look at, I do some statistical analysis of languages. I come up with some propositions. I'm, I'm sure James would be the first to agree that not everything he said was true, but the basic premises um, right, right. I think are valid. I, and I think this gets to the biblical literature. There is clearly an, e- an evolving sensibility the question is, what is the nature of that sensibility? I, I noticed that even in, in your book, that, you know, just the written language, already you're doing, you're dealing with a level of subjectivity or even interiority. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be, you know, that's the, the issue in biblical literature, even in the, what might be the earliest books, but in, uh, even in a book like Genesis, there is a level of interiority that is being expressed, not simply in a direct way, but in the, in the literary method that is used. So that already there, there is something happening. People have noticed this even with the, the various characters that are introduced, that a person like Abraham. Abraham seems to be able to, you know, when he lies about his wife being, uh, he says, oh, no, she's my sister that people have read that and say, well, wait a minute, he seems to be getting at the intent or the thinking of the king before the king does. In other words, that there is this capacity on the part of some of the characters in biblical literature to read human interiority, and it's also reflected then in the literature itself that is of a, a something different is happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. So I think the Bible is a wonderful, from a Jamesian perspective, the Bible is a wonderful source. Um, I mean, the, the first major division between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's very clear um, that you have a d- different psychologies. I think, as you know, most of the Old Testament, probably the, the books were composed depending who you ask, what book you look at, 6th, 5th, 4th, 3rd century BCE. And so it's, it's difficult to say exactly, uh, you, we can't make the claim that they were recording exactly what happened. But I think what they were doing is they were relying on oral traditions of, of old stories. And basically what they were interested in is why did God stop talking to us directly? And, you know, we have all the temple. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And, you know, and and that's a simplification, of course, but I think basically that's the thrust of of the Old Testament. What has happened? Why did Yahweh leave us? And and as you know, there's an evolution of Yahweh, you know, in some books. And the problem with when we say book, of course, as you know, it's very complicated because you have different strata and different authors and no no one really knows necessarily who wrote what. We, We have an idea of when books were written, but those books were a sort of a, a longing for an earlier time when Yahweh walked among people and spoke directly to us. 
and what happens. Um, and, 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 and I mean, that, that's how I view um, the Old uh, Testament. And Yahweh underwent a, a really radical uh, transformation. And, you know, um, people say, that we use the expression Judaic uh, religion. I really think that, I, I think in some ways we should be talking about a, a Judaic philosophy. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, supposedly Yahweh um, came down to Mount Sinai, expressed himself as a burning bush and spoke to Moses. And Moses said, you know, who are you? Which is, by the way, at that time was a, a common way for people to ask when they were visited by a deity. Who are you? Let me know who I'm, who's talking to me. Um, and uh, Yahweh said, I am who I am which I think actually is more of a philosophical than a religious claim because it's, it's a little bit puzzling what that means. And so Judaism, and, and this is just my opinion, as it evolved during the first millennium, it became more and more philosophical. It became more abstract. And Yahweh was sort of moved out of this world into this trans transcendental realm where he was still involved in the world he would still have now and then visit the prophets of course the, the prophets were the last direct link to Yahweh but for the average person they did not you know they'd have to go through the priesthood or visit the temple in order to uh, commune with Yahweh um, Yahweh stopped talking to people and this, of course, describes not just Judaism, but re religions in general. If you look at uh, what, what was happening in during the transition from the Bronze Age into the Iron Age, so the the Old Testament books are really Iron Age books written with a nostalgic nostalgic longing for the Bronze Age. Mm. And, uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of things I could say. And I think I don't like to say that one people is, is unique. You know, we were talking about the, the Japanese, some Japanese claiming they're so unique. But there is something startling, new, revolutionary about uh, Judaic thought around that time, which is that uh, even though eventually prophets would emerge and the temple and the priesthood would emerge, um, what's interesting about uh, Judaism, I think, is that they still believe they should have a direct relationship to God, uh, which um, and, and should not be mediated. You know, because around that time, what happened after around 1000 BCE, as people stopped hearing the voices of their gods, they developed a priesthood and they developed oracles and divination as a way to reconnect with the with the religious sphere. But in Judaism, they held on to this idea that I have a personal relationship to God. He may not be speaking to me anymore in the 5th, 4th, 3rd, 2nd century BCE, but God looks at me as an individual, not as a member of just a community. Of course, he did that too as, as a, um, the, the national Jewish community. But what I'm saying is there is something interesting about Judaism. Mm -hmm that it held on to this idea that I have a special relationship to God. I, I remember talking to a, a rabbi who actually had an interest in James. 
he's unfortunately he passed away a few years ago but i asked him you know you're a man of the cloth why are you interested in julian james i mean julian james never argued against religion you can just do different ways to interpret him i suppose and he said and i said you know you 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 must take a theological view of what god is mm-hmm. and he said to me no i don't um i have my own relationship with god and i would never mm-hmm. tell anyone in my flock how to think about god that's their business mm-hmm. and that really struck me mm-hmm. you know he was a rabbi but he was trying to be secular in a certain sense and open minded and trying to be scientific and i think that's a defining feature you know why judaism survived i think is because it was able to evolve this notion that each individual has a special yeah. relationship to yeah. the deity i like that i think in other words there there is an obvious tension in the old testament itself that you find in one instance that god gives the law and the the temple and all that and then later you have prophets speaking for god saying i never commanded sacrifices there is this inherent tension are you familiar with uh, lacanian theory lacanian psychoanalysis and uh very vaguely with uh, his mirror theory of so this is you know this would be are, do you know who slavoj zizek is uh he's kind of a right uh, I, I don't. I'm not very familiar, but but I know who he is. Well, they, in, in a sense, you could identify them as just Freudian psychoanalysts. That's a, a, a simplification. The interaction here is with the Bible, that Zizek calls himself a Pauline materialist. In other words, he's an atheist, but he's saying that what you have Paul doing in a place like Romans seven is true to what Freud was doing, or at least what Freud was doing as interpreted by Jacques Lacan. And this all then pertains, this goes back to our whole discussion uh, about Japanese-ness and the, the authorization. There is an understanding of God that I think we've described there in ancestor worship, you have it in the religions, you have it in notions of law, but I think Julian James has described it in the bicameral mind. This voice, it's not necessarily a pleasant voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's a commanding, it's oppressive. The idea in, uh, you know, Zizek thinks that the whole point of Christianity is to get rid of that God. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, that this, this law-giving voice of authority or in Freudian psychoanalysis, the oppressive superego, uh, that in Paul, you know, Paul says, he, he describes the law that way. He, he's not talking about necessarily the law per se, but he's talking about our orientation to the law, that it's mm-hmm. this oppressive force that is death-dealing. Well, that's the whole point of Christianity, is to free us of that oppression. Mm-hmm. Well, that fits so neatly with what Julian, or at least in what I see Julian Jaynes describing, that there is this understanding of, a, of an oppressive, law-giving voice, maybe it's right in my own head, and that, that you gradually have a, a development of human subjectivity, and that of course, now I, I'm a, a, as a believing person, I think there is God, 
But I don't think it's that God. In other words, the, this law-giving voice, superego, oppressive. In fact, I don't think that we get to God until we get rid of this oppressive superego. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. so that would, that's my understanding. That's why I think James' theory uh, certainly fits. In other words, it's not a over and against either Judaism or Christianity. But mm-hmm. it it could be I, I see it as being uh, easily incorporated into that understanding. Yeah, you know um, what's interesting is psychology as it developed in modern times is, is very much rooted in religion, and you, you we can make the argument that in modern times psychology and politics have replaced religion. Uh, you know that, that the word itself, religion, is it's sort of a newer term actually, historically speaking. Um, people did not necessarily think so clearly, uh, oh, this is religion, this is politics, this is art. You know, in pre-modern times, there was no notion of religion as being separate from uh, daily life. And so with that said, you know, this idea that psychology, in a sense, has grown out of religion. The reason why I mention that is because, maybe you know this, Jane's father was a Unitarian minister. He has a, um, a collection of uh, sermons. I think it's called the, the Magic Well. In any case, uh, if you're interested, if anyone's interested, I wrote a, a blog about his father and how his father, how Julian Jaynes' father influenced his theories. Mm. One of the things the father talks about is this idea of the self. And I can't remember exactly how he put it, so I want to be very careful but it's almost as if the self has replaced God, or that we find God through the self. And the idea is because we are evolving, adapting, changing beings, we never really know what our self is. So when I say the self, I don't mean the ego per se. The ego is something you just look through to this greater self, which of course many people would define as God. So what is religion? I mean, there's many ways to talk about it, but one way is religion is having a voice or knowing what to do, having a conscience, I I suppose, is one one way to put it. And so the question becomes, ultimately, where do the commands, where do the voices come from that tell us what to do? Um, And I think some people say, well, from myself, but that doesn't really answer anything. I think from not just a philosophical, but even a scientific point of view. What is the self? I mean, as I said, it's always changing anyways. And we can get a little bit mystical and say, well, you know, maybe the self is connected to something else, something deeper. I don't want to reinterpret or distort what James himself said, but I can certainly see um, James being amenable to this idea that we, in our sense, have become gods. There's a lot. There's a lot of talk in modern times that the self is, is the new god, a religion of selfhood, and that can mean it can be that can mean something negative. This idea that you know we're just consumerist entities and we're, we're all we that uh, we're, we're just selfish. But selfhood as religion can mean something different. It can mean something more positive. And and I think that um, that James would you know, perhaps agree with this idea that whether you believe in, in a supernatural entity or not, you have to believe in something. There right. must be something underlying the self. 
because we can't pin down. It's very difficult to pin down what our individual cells are. Yeah, this is a, a, a Freudian Christian reading. I'm afraid that if we uh, devolve to imagining that the ego, you know, and that word, uh, by what we mean by that word, that, that is a Greek word that is used in the New Testament, that it, Paul says that I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. What he's saying is, I, the ego, this understanding of myself, this authorization that I've given myself, that that is undone. That is this dynamic of uh, a kind of superego, ego understanding. It's there in Paul when he talks about the law of the mind, the law of the I. You know, he talks about a tripartite self. But of course, a good Eastern Orthodox understanding, perhaps, is there is that self emptied of God, and all you have then is this dynamic that is a dynamic that is death drive, that is uh, focused ultimately, you know, uh, focused on the self, well, that it's focused on nothing. What fills that tripartite self? Mm. Well, that would be God. That, that is, it, it, is our, it is our participation in who God is. It is, in Eastern Orthodox terms, theosis. You know, in Eastern Orthodox, don't hesitate to say, ye shall become gods, you know, quoting Christ, to saying that that is uh, the goal, is that full participation in deity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, th so there's this, this idea of emptying the self. And another way to put it, I think, is moving your ego aside and letting God uh, come in and fill that empty space. Yeah, the Greek word uh, kenosis, I think it is. I, I can't yes, remember. Yes, yes, from Philippians. Is that what it is? Uh huh. Yeah, that's the problem. You know, when we hear the word ego, of course, it usually it often can have negative connotations. It's connected to egotism, egotistical. Um, but the, but the idea is that it's the ego itself that has to make that decision to yeah. move aside and empty space. So it, it's kind of a you know it, it's it's a bit paradoxical. Mm -hmm. um when, when you stop and think about it yeah yeah brian this has been a wonderful conversation i i can't i haven't enjoyed something so much in in a long time so oh good well thank you thank I'm you sure, for having me oh i'm sure glad we could do this i don't uh that uh yeah the connect the japan connection the psychology connection man i i, I just uh, i really look forward to talking and it proved to to be such a, a wonderful conversation oh good well th like i said thank you very much it's been j just as interesting for me i you know i haven't been to japan in quite a while i, I haven't really been working on japan projects uh too much so i I've, i i, I it, it brings back a lot of memories a lot of good memories actually to be able yeah. to uh, talk about japan <laughs> I, let, let me let me ask you one more thing i i and this is kind of my personal curiosity you're doing counseling now nice and I'm presuming that your your Julian Jane's uh, understanding plays into that. Yes. Um, in fact, one of my projects now is to write a book on what I call a Janesian psychotherapeutics. And Jane's himself never talked or wrote about counseling or psychotherapy, but in his writings, 
not in his book, but in, in another publication, uh, in an article, he spent just a few sentences suggesting that my idea is if we understand what consciousness is, we can use consciousness in psychotherapy. We can, he suggested to build a, a whole theory, you might say, on how the human mind can heal itself when the healthy aspects of consciousness are enhanced. And so what I've done the past two or three years, I've taken it upon myself to go into Jane's very deeply, to go into psychotherapy very deeply and find connections between a definition of consciousness, techniques we use in psychotherapy, and to explain why certain techniques work. And certain techniques work, I think, because of the nature of consciousness. It doesn't explain everything about psychotherapy. I'm not making that claim. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying Jane's offers enough material on the nature of consciousness that we can use it as what I call the active ingredients of subjectivity when it heals itself. Mm. So in any case, that, that's, that's my project now. So yes, indirectly, I mean, in my, in my uh, clinical practice, I, I do, I can't say I use James directly, but certainly he does, has inspired me. Yeah. And I, I, I am working on coming up with some more focused Jamesing techniques um, to use in psychotherapy. I can just as you're describing that, you know, in a Freudian psychoanalysis, the, the, the thing that he hit upon is the compulsion to repeat. And of course, the compulsion to repeat is this uncontrollable thing that often acts as a voice in my head. Yes. Uh, I can't get rid of it. And, right. it, it and, and it's an oppressive force that it seems to be outside of me. And the more I try to get rid of it, the more it grips me. And this is his very definition of the death drive. The death drive is the, you know, the drive to get rid of the death drive. This, so this compulsion that it almost sounds like itself, you know, the sickness, the neurosis, it sounds like a kind of remnant of, of, of a brain, of a mind mm -hmm. that we're all growing out of. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's a good example. And, you know, I think another good example is the ability to uh, visualize in our mind, to use our mind's eye. You know, there's a small population of people who actually can't do that, but most of us can do that. And visualization techniques are commonly used in psychotherapy uh, to deal with PTSD or trauma, all, all types of uh, applications. And so, of course, the ability to introspect or to visualize is a key feature of consciousness. And so, you know, my argument that I'm making in my work is this is something that should be cultivated among people. Yeah. We, you know, we take it for granted. And to, uh, up until, to show you how mysterious things are, to my mind, there is no, not, there is no scientific explanation for how we can use the mind's eye, how we can, Basically, it's a type of hallucination. I call it a, a, a quasi or semi-hallucination that we can visualize. That can be a very powerful healing technique. Um, and so in any case, that's just one example of what I mean about developing a Jamesian psychotherapeutics. Well, I like it. I like it. I, I want to read the book. Okay, good. I'll, <laughs> yeah, all right. Good. 
Hey, it's, it's been great, uh, Brian. Tell, hey, let me know. Do you have a publication date, or have you written the book yet? That yeah, well, the manuscript is written. I'm just about to submit it to the publisher. I'm not sure how long it'll take for them to actually produce the book, but yeah. I'll certainly keep you informed. All right. Hey, maybe progress. we could, uh, when it comes out, maybe we could do another conversation. Okay, great. Good. Yeah. All, All right. right. Well, it's good talking to you, and uh, thank you very much. Had a wonderful time. Okay, Brian. Good talking. All right. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.